So, behold our King. That's why we're here today, to behold him. And as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what we do. We behold Jesus, and more specifically, we hear Jesus. We see Jesus as the teacher, as the king, as in many ways, in every respect here, we see his three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Most immediately, we see Jesus as king. And as we think about beholding him and hearing him, I want to draw your attention uh, as we go through this Sermon on the Mount series, I want to draw your attention constantly to these words from Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. And they say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And so as we, as we kind of gather together and oftentimes we sing these songs of praise at the beginning of the service. And one of the ways that we can kind of air is we sing these songs and we sort of have that, that fluttery, worship, worshipful kind of experiential feeling. And then we, we come to the hearing of God's word and we kind of check out a little bit. Because we really like the singing part, but it's the kind of sitting under biblical teaching part that is maybe a little more difficult. It requires a little more effort. It requires a little more attentiveness. And what I would suggest to you is that if we are to rightly sing from the heart, behold our, our king, then we must listen to our king as he speaks to us today through his word. We must behold him here in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's go to Matthew 3, Matthew 5, sorry, Matthew 5, verses 3 to 12. I want to read all of these Beatitudes. We'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into what we have here today. Matthew 5, <clears throat> verses 3 to 12. We won't look at all of this today, but I want to read the entire section. The Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's go to God in prayer, ask for his help this morning, that we will understand his word, that the Holy Spirit will apply it to our hearts, and that we will be changed because we have been here today with one another and before the face of our God. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us. 
Before the foundation of the world, you chose us in him. Those whom you foreknew, you predestined. You did this according to the counsel of your will. And then in the fullness of time, you sent your son to purchase his bride, his church, his sheep, his flock. So God, today we who belong to you as Christians are deeply grateful for who we are in Christ as children of God and co-heirs with Christ as the sheep of the good shepherd. God, we're grateful this morning that we are here. We recognize that uh, apart from your grace, we could be anywhere doing anything. And God, because of your grace, we're here. We're together with the people of God. We are worshiping you. We are We are exulting in you. We are exalting your name. We're making much of your son. We are reading your word. And apart from your grace, that would not be the case, God. And so, Lord, we praise you for this privilege we have this morning to be together. We ask that we will use it well. Pray that we will be attentive to your word, that we will be receptive to the workings of your spirit, that as the Sermon on the Mount is applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that we will be responsive, that repentance and faith, that which brought us into the kingdom by your Spirit's grace given to us, repentance and faith, that very thing that it will be manifested again today freshly in our Christian lives and that we will turn away from sin, turn towards you, the living God, that we will trust in you and not ourselves, that we will trust in you and not the fading things of this world, the trivialities that so often occupy our time and our minds. God, we pray that you will establish yourself today as the great one, the holy one, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of mankind. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this wonderful passage of your word. Would you do your work now and give our minds understanding in Jesus' name, amen. So last week was really a, just kind of an introduction to this entire passage that we, we just read, a, an introduction to the Beatitudes, an overview of this unit or set. It was not meant to go into detail into any of these Beatitudes, but really just to look at them as a whole and, and really to just approach them on the front end, to just kind of look over them, as it were, and see the, the, the whole picture that we have in verses 3 to 12. And we thanked God for a number of things as we came to that, as the, the title of last week's sermon was Grateful for Grace. And what I wanted to do is just for us to respond to the, the Beatitudes as a unit And to thank God for his expressions of grace toward us that we find even in looking at it in general. So we thanked God for citizenship as we see the kingdom of God theme at the very beginning and the end of this section. We thanked him for contentment as we consider the notion of being blessed, being truly happy from God's perspective, being being those who are recipients of divine favor, those who have been made content and who've been given eternal contentment. In his presence. We, we praise him for that. We thank him for that before we even get into the details. We thank him for clarity. As we come to this passage of scripture, this is in some ways kind of an encapsulation of, of the entire Sermon on the Mount, and in many ways, which, which in many ways is an encapsulation of all of God's teaching about the Christian life found everywhere. 
that we have this nutshell of the Christian life, this nutshell theology of the Christian life. And here in the Beatitudes, it's made so clear to us what we ought to be and what we can be, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, what we ought to be and can be. Christ leaves us not in the dark, but he sheds light in every corner of our minds so that we will know exactly what it is that God wants for us. We thanked him for conviction, the fact that we can, we can read something like the Sermon on the Mount and we can be convicted, praise God, that he does that. That, as I said last week, he doesn't leave us in sin. He doesn't leave us in a pit of despair. He pulls us up out of that. And one of the ways he does that is through a, a passage like this where the beauty and the holiness and the perfection of the Christian life lived in the Spirit is held up for us and we see our lives as they really are in light of it. And that makes us convicted, praise God. But we also talked about last week how that conviction, it doesn't, doesn't leave us hopeless. It puts a certain level of hope in us so that as we're convicted, we also begin to realize by the presence of the Holy Spirit that we have the capacity to actually do these things, to live this life, that this is the life not that is unattainable out there uh, beyond our grasp, but this is something that we can take hold of today and begin to live out in this blessedness for God's glory. We have the capacity And so all of that really is just an introduction to what we find in the details of this passage. But today, we begin to dig into the particular Beatitudes. And there are a couple of main reasons for taking the first four as a unit. So we read the entire section. But what I want to do today is look at verses 3 to 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, you really could preach multiple sermons on each of these, and that's been done uh, by many, and uh, you have to kind of make a decision on that. But I think that this is really, it, it stands as a section, as kind of a unit within this larger unit, and there are two reasons I say that. The first reason is that the first four Beatitudes all begin, if you read them in Greek, they all begin with the same Greek letter, pi. They all have a puh, puh, puh sound when you come to them. And so some people say, well, this is just coincidental. But I think it, it's, it takes these four and sets them off as a unit so that you're able to come at these four and remember them as a unit. So there's that alliteration. Secondly, there is a common theme that we find in these first four Beatitudes. And I think the theme that we find is this idea of neediness before God. We see that in the very beginning. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We're confronted at the very beginning with this idea of poverty. And then we have, uh, in in the, the ones that follow, we have this idea of God being the one who comforts us. God being the one who satisfies us. We have in verse 3... Poverty. We have in verse 4, mourning. We have in verse 5, meekness, which is kind of a lowliness. And then we have in verse 6, hunger. In other words, we see need in every one of these verses. And in each case, we see God meeting that need. And so that is the reason why I think what we have here is neediness before God and that this really is a unit. So the title for the sermon This morning is Characteristics of Citizens, Part 1, Needy Before God. And so we'll look at the other Beatitudes next time. 
And that will be part two. But so part one today, needy before God. And there are four things that I think we are drawn to as we consider the characteristics of citizens in these verses, one for each of these beatitudes. And the first thing that we see is the emptiness. Secondly, we see the tears. Thirdly, the lowliness. And then finally, the longing. And what I would submit to you is that these things should characterize every single Christian life. Every single Christian life here and now and today as we sit here this morning, when we leave here today, this is what we're called to be. As I used the analogy last week of this is our passport. This is even our passport photo. Emptiness, tears, lowliness, and longing. But before we get started, I want to give you a kind of summary quote from one of uh, the sort of leading commentators on the Sermon on the Mount. John Stott wrote The Cross of Christ. I don't know if you've read that book. Excellent book. Kind of like J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It's just sort of a theological classic. And here's what he says. The Beatitudes set forth the blessing which God bestows, not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace upon those in whom he is working such a character. So in other words, what we have as we go through these Beatitudes is blessed, 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 blessed. And that is the life of grace. That is the life in which we we dwell. That is the realm in which we dwell. That is our kingdom. The kingdom we belong to as members and citizens is one that is of grace. And it's a blessed existence. It's a happy existence. And it is happy and blessed in flowing out of these specific characteristics that we find. This is a kingdom where the people are poor in spirit, where they mourn, they are meek, they hunger and thirst for righteousness, they are merciful, pure in heart, they are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Those are the characteristics, and it is an outflowing of those characteristics which we have and which we are growing in that we can be called blessed. That is the realm in which we dwell. So there are three things, three words I want to give you as we move through these Beatitudes. The first word is identity. When you read the Beatitudes, you should think identity. And what I mean by that is, this is, as I said before, who you already are. So this is not something you have to go and add. It's not a supplement. This is something, these are things that you already are. And we talked about last week that these are not things you already are because you were naturally born with certain dispositions or you have particular genetics or you were trained in a particular way as you were growing up as a child or you have a particular temperament. These are things that you and I already are because we have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And this is who we already are. That's empowering. So identity. The second word that has to guide us is pursuit. And these two, you know, kind of hold them in tension a little bit. Hold them in, in, uh, they balance. You hold them in balance against one another, with one another. And what I mean here by pursuit is, this is what we are to seek. Jesus says at the end of Matthew 6, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. That's what we're talking about. The kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is what we're talking about as well. So we know that it's not just understood as our identity. Here we go. We have it already. Great. I'm just going to sit back and relax and just sort of be who I am. There is some truth to that. 
resting in who we are in Christ and what comes out of that. But we are to diligently seek and pursue these very things, which means that you are freed up as a Christian to actually wake up in the morning and read these Beatitudes and say, I'm going to seek these qualities today in my life. That's okay to do that. Do that. Jesus is telling us, do that. Seek to be conformed to these very things. These are our pursuit. And then finally, and I love this one, the, this is our future. So identity, pursuit, and future. And what I mean by that is that every single aspect of this Sermon on the Mount And every single one of these beatitudes will be perfectly realized one day in your life, in my life, for all of us. When we are before Christ, blameless, without spot or wrinkle. Remember when we were going through the sermon series on the family from Ephesians 5 and 6. And what did it say about Jesus? It said that he purifies his bride. He gave himself up for her. That he might purify her, present her to himself blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such defilement. One day, each of us and collectively as the bride of Christ will stand before Jesus and get this. It's amazing. We will be perfectly like him. We will be exactly like him in righteousness. Not a single spot or stain of sin will exist in us. So it is who we are. It is what we pursue vigorously, and it is what awaits every single one of us. And that's encouraging when the pursuing is not going so well, which is always the case, right? Isn't it always the case that we pursue, we pursue, and we fall on our faces? And that's part of what the poor in the spirit is going to mean as we get to it. But this is an encouragement to us that it will be. He who began a good work in you will complete it. On the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it. He will do it for you. He will do it for me. For all of those who bear his holy name. And as we think about our identity. This first of the three. Nothing is more important than the first beatitude. As I alluded to a moment ago. It is the spring from which all the others flow. So let's look at this first one. Verse three. The emptiness the emptiness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first thing that I want you to see this morning as we come to the Beatitudes is the emptiness of the citizen in this kingdom. Emptiness. The best way to understand this verse is to say it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs and only theirs. No one belongs to the kingdom of God unless he or she has become poor in spirit. In fact, this is is what it means to be converted. We fall on our faces before God and we are converted in poverty of spirit. Which means that if poverty of spirit is not a reality, then you're not a Christian. Now, it will be imperfect. We're going to talk about that. We're all going to be convicted. Maybe some of you not. But it is true that poverty of spirit is at the very gate of the Christian life. And so without it, there is no belonging in the kingdom. It is foundational and central and pervasive for every Christian. Poverty of spirit. So what does it mean? 
What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And I think the only way really to define this, it's hard to define. It's hard to define any idea like this because you can use a bunch of words and it kind of captures it. But I think Jesus gives us a perfect illustration of what poverty of spirit actually is. He gives us a beautiful picture of what it, what it is not. In other words, the opposite of poverty of spirit. And he gives us a perfect picture of what it is. And that comes from Luke 18. Luke 18. Jesus describes two different guys. These two guys wake up in the morning. I guess it's morning. We'll say it's morning. They wake up in the morning and they go off to the temple to pray. You've read this story, I'm sure. Maybe not. Two guys, they go to the temple to pray. One of them is a Pharisee and the other is a tax collector. Now, a Pharisee is a very religious person. Pharisee would have had a lot of uh, accoutrements attached to himself. He would have had lots of regalia, lots of, of kind of garments that would suggest his, his religious affiliations, would suggest his religious status. He is kind of walking with all of that on him to the temple to pray. And then you have a tax collector. A tax collector was a shameful person. This was a person who had a close relationship with pagan Gentiles. And of course, for Jews, that made such a person unclean. This was a person who had quite a bit of freedom to get taxes in ways that he wished to. And so there was opportunity for stealing. There was the opportunity for taking advantage of people who were paying their taxes. Two very different guys, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want you to hear what the Pharisee prays. When he gets to the temple, this is what he has to say to God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this, this tax collector over here. He sees the tax collector. He, he points to God. He points out the tax collector to God says, thank you, God, that I'm not like this nasty fellow over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, of course, this is pretty disgusting. We read this and we're disgusted. We should be. The problem is it's often us. The tax collector is described differently. The Pharisee walks up to the temple and he stands alone and he looks up to God and he prays. The tax collector, it says he stands far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He was beating his breast, which was a sign in ancient Judaism of uh, of shame and humility. He beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Period. Nothing else. Not a single syllable after that. That's it. Wow. What a contrast between these two men. One quite certain of himself, the other not at all. The difference between these two men can be seen in the opening words to the parable. In Luke 18, 9, it says this. Jesus told this parable. Here's what we need to understand for ourselves. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. This is the kind of person we have here. One of the picture we have here is one of self-exaltation, self-reliance, self-assuredness, self-righteousness, self-centeredness. Everything about this man, this Pharisee, is self. He trusts in himself, his tithing, his fasting, his righteousness, his good deeds. He trusts in himself. He dwells on his deeds. Have you ever found yourself doing that? You ever done a good deed and you've thought about it for a little while? Felt kind of good about it? You know, like, uh, that went well. That went well. Thank you, Lord, that I was able to do that great deed. That's, that, that's kind of moving in this direction. That dwelling on that which is only done by God's grace working in you and which you should very quickly forget. Do forget. Do forget. Not this Pharisee. He has a long list of everything he's done. He is ready to die and stand before God with a list of all the things he's done right, of all his deeds. Of course, we know what happens in that situation. God unrolls a very long list of his sin and casts him in hell. But this is the opposite. This Pharisee is the opposite the exact opposite of poor in spirit. And at the end of the parable, Jesus says this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the difference between being poor in spirit and not being poor in spirit. And here's what I want to say to you. If you are not a Christian... You are, the, you are like this Pharisee, whether you know it or not. Because every person who lives this life apart from God is a person who is filled with self-centeredness. A person who is filled with self-assuredness, self-reliance, self-exaltation, trusting in what you do, thinking in the back of your mind, if there is a God saying to yourself there's probably not or hating that God deep down inside because you know he's real but you hate him because you have to stand before him in your sin. And all the while, trusting in yourself, trusting in your deeds, thinking that if there is a God, I've done a lot of good things in my life. He'll let me in. He'll accept me. If he's a good God, If he's a good God, if there even is a God, he'll accept me. This is not just a description of a religious Pharisee. This is a description of every person apart from God. This is life for the unbeliever. This is life for the non-Christian. The spiritually poor person is utterly empty. He has nothing to draw from. When you read... 2 Corinthians 6.10, and he's describing what it means to be poor. This is what he says after that. Having nothing. That's what it means to be poor. In fact, this word does not just mean having less than you would like. It doesn't just mean kind of being on the low side, you know, on the income scale. It doesn't mean that at all. It means being utterly depleted, utterly empty of anything, having nothing. And what does this, this tax collector do in this position? 
What does he do different from this Pharisee? Where does he turn? Well, we know where the Pharisee turns. He turns inward. Because all he's talking about is himself. All he cares about is what he's done. That's what he's focused on, himself. This tax collector, by contrast, is focused on God. He turns to God. He, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, which presupposes he understands the holiness of God. He understands the mercy and love of God. His focus is entirely on the attributes of God. He turns away from himself and he turns to God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And what does he turn to God for? One thing, not, self, not congratulation. See, this Pharisee actually, it, it, he would think that if, if, if God were going to speak audibly to me right now, he would say, good job. Good job, my man. That's what this Pharisee expects to hear from God. It's what he imagines in his wicked heart that God is saying from heaven. Good job, Mr. Pharisee. He's turning to God for congratulation, if he's turning to God at all. This tax collector is turning to God for one thing, and that is mercy. Pity in his helplessness, in his emptiness, in his utter worthlessness and bankruptcy he turns to God for mercy because he knows he has nothing else to claim he cannot claim anything about himself he cannot turn to God and and say that he's done anything to deserve anything he he must rest entirely on God's attribute of loving kindness and mercy that's it that's all he has otherwise he is empty and he turns to God in one way humbly beating his breast. And so, as I said before, this is a reality for every Christian, but it must be more and more the case every single day. And, you know, we talk, to, we talk about this a lot, but it's, it's so true. If you want to know how poor in spirit you really are, if we want to know that about ourselves, we want to ask the question, there is one test that, is, that will always demonstrate the level of spiritual poverty for us, and it's this, secret prayer. Secret prayer. And here's why. Because it is not, as Jesus was going to say, it is not a religious act that, that invites men to look upon and congratulate you for how holy and great you are. But here's what it is. It is, an, it is a knowledge. You, you do not, a person does not pray unless he or she believes they need something. Unless he or she believes that without it, they would utterly fail. That was even in the life of the Lord Jesus. He's up every morning. He's up late. He's got people around him all the time. He gets up early in the morning. What does he do? He goes to a secret place and he prays even the incarnate son of God, the one who was perfect, who never sinned in his humanity, knew that he needed every moment. God, the father, I can do nothing of myself, Jesus said. That's poverty of spirit. How much more for those of us who are filled with sin? prayer. The less we pray is a demonstration of the less poor in spirit that we really are because we think we can do it. We think we have what it takes. I can live this life. I could just have a few things I do every day and I'm good. Just keep a couple spiritual disciplines. I can do this or that and I'm good. I mean, I'm, I'm doing this Christian life thing. The truth is we're not. We don't even see how the enemy is ravaging our lives, ravaging our marriages, ravaging our children, ravaging our church. We don't even see it because we don't pray, because we're not poor in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration of what this is not. And this is very important. 
Because you might be tempted to think wrongly what poverty of spirit is. So I love this illustration. Let me read it to you. He says, I remember once having to go to preach at a certain town. When I arrived on the Saturday evening, a man met me at the station and immediately asked for my bag. Indeed, he almost took it from me, but from my hand by force. Then he talked to me like this. I am a deacon in the church where you are preaching tomorrow, he said. And then he added, you know, I am a mere nobody, a very unimportant man, really. I do not count. I am not a great man in the church. I am just one of those men who carry the bag for the minister. And this is what Lloyd-Jones says in reflection upon that man's words. Says this, he was anxious that I should know what a humble man he was. How poor in spirit he was. Showy. Yet, by his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing he was trying to establish. Do you hear that? In his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing he was trying to establish. We're not talking about a show. We're not talking about being the most humble guy in the room, the most humble lady in the room, the most beat down over sin and self. That's not it. That's showiness. That's the Pharisee. That's not what the Spirit of God puts in us. So poor in spirit is not, as D.A. Carson says, showy humility, but rather the deepest form of repentance in the deepest, darkest recesses of the heart, an acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy, spiritual unworth before God. I have nothing. I am empty. God, if, I, if you don't fill me, I'll have zero. I'll have zero. That is poverty of spirit. And, is, and it is this acknowledgement that results in the next beatitude, which is from verse 4. And now I want to draw you to the tears. Verse 4. The emptiness, and that brings the tears. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Many of you are familiar with the biblical books Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, uh, last Sunday... The kids were, at least the preschoolers, were looking at Ezra reading the law to the people of God. And so these are, these are books I hope that you're familiar with from the Bible. Uh, if not, maybe read them. But they were written at a time when God providentially brought his people out of Persia and back to Palestine. And so it's kind of like when God brought his people out of Egyptian slavery. And he brought them to the promised land from, through Moses and then through Joshua. Well, later, after God's judgment, God brought in nations to, to, send the, to disperse the people out. And then God moved in the heart of the pagan Persian king Cyrus. And he wrote a decree that the people of God could go back to Palestine, could rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem and could rebuild the temple. But what Ezra finds, Ezra is the second wave of people who go with Ezra. He goes in the second wave. And what Ezra finds among the people when he returns to the land is that they have disobeyed God by intermarrying and intermingling with their pagan neighbors. And so what is Ezra's response? He gets to the land. He, he, he recognizes all that God has done. God, we sinned. And you 
kicked us out of the land because of our sin. And then you mercifully, not because we were righteous and and you were watching us and saying, oh, there you go, you're righteous now, I'm going to bring you back. No, because of your mercy and your grace and your redemptive purposes, you, because of your own holiness, brought us back and you've given us this land. He shows up and this is what he sees. The people don't care about the Lord. They don't care about his law. They don't care about holiness. They don't care about obedience. What does Ezra say? Oh, Lord... The God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And then it goes on to say this, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. Let me read that little description there again. How often, this is a question we have to ask ourselves, how often does what I'm about to read describe anything about your Christian life? made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, weeping bitterly. When I say tears, I don't mean literally. Some people cry more than other people. Some people maybe have a confession of sin. Don't shed a single tear, but it's from the heart. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a spirit, an attitude, a disposition of grieving and mourning and weeping over sin in our lives, over the disobedience that we oftentimes express. There are probably few words in the Bible that runs so contrary to our culture than these from James 4, 9 to 10. I want to read these words to you. But first let me say that these are probably words that you're never going to see plastered on any Christian billboard. Because the problem is our churches become worldly. Our Christian lives become worldly. And what I'm about to read from James runs utterly contrary to everything about the spirit of our age. Here's what it says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. One of the things that a number of commentators talk about is the fact that in, in our culture, we have this, this attitude about the Christian life that we should always have this big smile on our face. Or we're just the happy people. And we're happy in the worldly sense. We're just the kind of people who are always smiling, always chipper about life. And, and, and then we have preachers who make much of that and make life all about having a, a, great, a, a great, perfect, prosperous life. And that it's all about that. And so you should always have a good, happy, chipper face on. We see that all over the place. This runs utterly contrary to what we find in James 4, 9 to 10, and what the Lord Jesus is saying here. For is this just kind of flippant, casual, lightheartedness. That's the opposite of what we find here, a seriousness about life. D.A. Carson puts it this way, eternity is there. Every living human being is rushing toward it. God's revelation is there, and the alternatives it presents will come to pass. Life or death, pardon or condemnation, heaven or hell. These are realities which will not go away. The man who lives in light of them 
and rightly assesses himself and his world in the light of them cannot but mourn. This is the reality of the world we live in. Do we have a biblical worldview? Do we see the world through biblical lenses? Or we just get sucked into the, the way the world views itself, the way the world views reality with no biblical theology, with no theology of sin, no theology of the holiness of God, no understanding of the corruption of man's heart and the enslavement of human beings to their own sinful desires. We should mourn. That's exactly what our Lord Jesus tells us characterizes life in this world. It doesn't mean being grumpy or gloomy all of the time, but it does mean a certain level of seriousness and urgency about life. And it also means a right assessment of self, a right assessment of self and a response to our own sin. And that goes back to Ezra. Do we fall on our face before God? And here's one of the things I want to encourage us to do on a very practical level. I said before that poverty of spirit comes from prayer and it is, it is cultivated more and more by prayer. And prayer itself is a thermometer of whether or not we are poor in spirit. And so here's what I would, I would plead with us to do. My own life and all of us is let's pray more and let's confess our sin more. When we go to God in prayer, let's start like the tax collector and say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because everything you're about to pray is going to be premised there on your sinfulness, my sinfulness, and God's holiness and his goodness and his love for us. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how we approach the Lord God. That's how Ezra approached the Lord God. That's how all of God's people should approach him, mourning with poverty of spirit. But I think it also means a right assessment of society and a response. You know, sometimes we think that we go out as Christians and we do good deeds and we build, you know, through historically you build orphanages and you build hospitals and you take care of the poor and you do all of these various things that you're about as a Christian because it's just what's good to do. And we did see, in fact... That in Titus, we are called to do good works, to simply do them. That it is an act of obedience to God that we go out and we do good works for, the, for those who are brothers and sisters in Christ and for everyone else as well. But what I want you to see is that our good works should derive from a kind of mourning. And here's what I mean. We go out doing good works for people because we see the ravages of sin in our society. We see sin showing its ugly head in all spheres of society. And so we desire to, as we mourn over the presence of sin, we desire to eradicate it wherever it may be found. We desire in the strength of God's spirit to to target those things and to speak against those things and to be light in the midst of those things as we find over here to be salt and light in the world. That is part of what it means to mourn. Do you care? Do we care? You know, I praise God for Mark and Michelle Grasso. They wouldn't want me to mention them in a sermon. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, the Empowered to Connect conference and the fact that they've taken such a lead in that and that they care so much for the, the, the orphan and the care for children who are, come from very difficult backgrounds. That's an example. It's a real lived example of what it means to see evil in the world and to say, I mourn over that. I don't want that in our world. I want to fight that. It's that mourning and weeping over that darkness and that deprivation, that lack. That is what I think is also implied here. 
And our mourning comes with God's blessing of comfort. Here, we see that we're hopefully convicted. God convicts us, but as I said last week, he never convicts us and leaves us hopeful. So as he convicts us, as we mourn, we even receive God's comfort. Have you ever confessed your sin and mourned over your sin before God and not been comforted? Of course not. We confess our sin, God gives us that hope that we can overcome that sin. And he gives us, those, as I said last week, those holy desires. He replaces that desire for sin with a desire for his own glory and for holiness of life. So we see that comfort here. We also see that comfort in the future. Revelation 7.17 says this. We love these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more mourning in heaven. There will be no more mourning because there will be no more sin. There will be no more effect of the fall in you, in me, in the society in which we find ourselves in the new heaven and new earth. There will be nothing to mourn. So God will satisfy us. He will comfort us. And it is out of this poverty of spirit and mourning that the characteristic of meekness is born. So let's go now to our third characteristic, and that is lowliness. Verse 5. This is what verse 5 says. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, a dictionary definition of this Greek word is this. I'll give it to you. Just dictionary definition. Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Now, we know that's the exact opposite of that Pharisee we just read about, right? Not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance, being gentle, humble, considerate, and then it uses the word that's used for it here, meek. It is this lowliness that characterized Moses. Numbers 12.3 says that there was not a man who lived who was more meek than Moses. And if you go back to Numbers 12 and you look at the context there, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' brother and sister, have risen up against him. And they're criticizing him and critiquing him. And what does Moses do? Nothing. We don't do that. You let, somebody, you let somebody point out the fact that there's something wrong with us or somebody come against us. We're ready to fight back. We're very defensive. But Moses in that situation where the, the text draws attention to his meekness, Moses didn't fight back. He didn't vindicate himself. He didn't demand his rights. He didn't start pointing out the fact, who was there when God parted that sea? Who did God do that through? It wasn't you, Aaron. It wasn't you, Mary. It was me. It was Moses. It was me. He didn't do that. He didn't start vindicating himself and patting himself on the back and making much of his power and his calling and all of this that God had, had done in his life. No. He didn't do that at all. He didn't feel the need to assert himself, defend himself, or demand his rights. He trusted God to do that, and God did it. God showed up, said, Moses, you just stand right here. Miriam and Aaron, and God dealt with them. And he gave Miriam leprosy for a short time. God dealt with them. Moses did not need to vindicate himself. The Lord vindicated him. And Jesus too, as he was suffering, he was a lamb before the slaughter. He did not open his mouth. He did not revile those who reviled him. And what did God do for Jesus? He raised him from the dead. He vindicated him. Jesus was perfectly meek. Meekness is not weakness. You might think that you're meek. 
but it might just be weakness, timidity, or a lack of courage. It's none of those things because we know Jesus had courage. We know that he was not weak. We know that he was not timid. He went into the temple with a whip and he expressed God's righteous indignation against those who were defiling that holy place. We know how God spoke to the Pharisees when they were practicing their hypocrisy and when they were getting angry because Jesus was healing these precious people. Jesus was not timid, not at all, but he was perfectly meek. So meekness is not weakness, timidity, or lack of courage. And maybe you think that you're meek, but not. A favorite quote of commentators as you look at this is by Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I've mentioned many times. This is what he says. I love this definition. It's, it's so rich. He says, the man who is truly meek is the one who is amazed. Now listen to this. This is great. Is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Do you see that? We live in an entitlement culture. We're entitled. We're entitled to certain things from God. God, you better take this thing out of my life. God, I'm your child. Why aren't you taking care of me in this specific way that I need? We are the most entitled people. That's who we are. That's how we operate. We operate that way with God in prayer. We operate that way with each other. But that is not what meekness is. Is It flows out of a right understanding of who we are. You see how meekness flows out of poverty of spirit and mourning? Once you've become as nothing before God and you've emptied yourself and you realize how utterly sinful we are apart from God's grace and then we mourn over our sin and we see who we are, do you see how kind of coming up out of that meekness is the only thing that can exist in a person who's poor of spirit, in a person who is mourning? It's the only thing that can exist. So how does this affect us? I think it means that we don't shake our fist at God when things don't go our way. That is not meekness towards God. It means, as Titus 3, 2 says, that we do not speak evil of anyone, that we avoid quarreling and that we are gentle. And I think in a big way, it is the opposite of putting ourselves forward. Now, you guys, we, we, all, we all sort of have seen this in the workplace, right? When you go to apply for a job, when you go to fill out an application, when you fill out your own resume, what is, what, is your, what is your objective? I've got to put myself forward. I've got to make myself look good. I've got to really, really put the best and the brightest qualities and aspects of who I am right there on the front for in this interview or in this whatever because that's what we do. We are self-assertive kinds of people. We put ourselves forward. That's our culture. That's the culture we find ourselves in. But we need to understand this is the exact opposite of meekness, the need to put ourselves up and forward, always pushing ourselves out there. It is these who inherit the earth. You know, who do we think about inheriting the earth? We think about, you know, Genghis Khan and Alexander the Great, all these great figures throughout history who conquered massive tracts of land through human power and strength and through oppressiveness and aggression and putting themselves forward. What Jesus says, no. Those who are meek will inherit the land, all of it, all of it. The new heaven and the new earth will belong to the meek. They will conquer it by grace and by meekness, not by force. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now I wanna finish up as we go to 
the fourth beatitude, all that we've said so far moves to this fourth beatitude, the longing. It says this, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. A right understanding of oneself and the expression of that in meekness is not the end. We don't just deal with the reality of sin. We are told to pursue something vigorously. We don't just fall on our face and say, woe is me, God. And we receive his mercy and we understand that, we are, that our sin is real and we mourn over it. And then that turns into meekness as we relate to God and as we relate to others. We're not, that's not the stopping point. We're then told that out of all of that, we are to vigorously pursue this one thing called righteousness. And we know that righteousness is Christ-likeness at the end of the day. And we see that encapsulated in these Beatitudes. So let's go back. The first three. Poor in spirit. John 5.30, Jesus says this, as I quoted earlier, I can do nothing of my own. Jesus was perfectly poor in spirit, though without sin. What about weeping over sin? Well, Jesus had no sin of his own to weep over. But what does it say in Luke 19, 41? Jesus looked out over Jerusalem and he wept. He wept. He mourned just as Ezra did. He mourned the sin of the people. He mourned the sin of Jerusalem, the holy city of God, the city of David, the city where God had countless, countless times demonstrated his power and his love and his grace, where he had sent the prophets to proclaim his truth. That city had become so corrupt and so wicked, and Jesus mourned over it. What about meekness? Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So to pursue righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to pursue Christ-likeness. And I think also we can understand this as pursuing the will of God and the word of God. Why do I say that? Well, Jesus says, says this in John 4, my food, listen to this, we hunger for food. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is God's work for you? What is God's work for you? You know, we're reading this book, The Gospel at Work in Men's Theology. And the understanding that every day we go to work, we're not just doing something other than our Christian life. We are living out our Christian life at work. That every email we send, every button we push, every order we take, everything we do is for our king. So what is God's will for you? What is the work he sent you to do? Do you hunger to do that unto him? And then the word Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I want to kind of end with this question. What do you really seek? Let me ask it this way. Let's say that you read the Bible. My hope is that we all read the Bible to varying degrees because we believe it is the word of God inspired and the means of our sanctification. We, 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 believe, we honestly believe that. We read the Bible, we listen to the Bible, we engage with the Bible as Christians. My hope is that we all do that. So let me go a step further and ask this question. The word for what? Why? Why do you read the Bible? What are you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for a spiritual experience? A spiritual high? A kind of fluttery thing? 
where you can say, man, that just felt so good to be in the presence of the Lord. And praise God for that because we live in the presence of the Lord. And anytime he blesses us with those experiences where we behold him and we love him and we cherish him and we rest in him, praise his name for that. He gives us that it's a great grace. But is that what we're pursuing all the time? Is that what we're meant to seek, to hunger and thirst for? Is some experience a fluttery? No, that's not what we're to seek. We're told here what we are to seek. Are we seeking spiritual capital? Think about it. We read the Bible. We memorize verses. We do all of these things so that we can kind of put away. We do it without even knowing it. We can kind of put away some spiritual capital back here. Kind of build ourselves up spiritually. Build ourselves up so that we can begin to compare ourselves to other people. We do that without even knowing it, brothers and sisters. Our hearts are corrupt. We are at war with Satan who is very subtle and very crafty and he's always doing things in us we don't even know or see. And the Sermon on the Mount comes along and says, look, look into your own heart. That's not why we do it. The word for what? Righteousness. Seek to live the life of Christ every day. And we are told as we finish today, we are told that God grants us satisfaction. He gives it to us now. We delight in the law of God from our heart. We've been reconciled to God. We've been circumcised in the heart. We're being sanctified and he will give it to us one day when we are before him entirely blameless with not a single ounce of unrighteousness to be found. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let's pray. Our good Father, these uh, Beatitudes are very searching, Lord. They search us out deeply. They search our hearts in places maybe we've forgotten about, areas of our lives that we neglect or we just don't even know are there, God, because of our, our blindness. Lord, how we carry around this body, how we carry around this carnality that has been crucified and yet wages war against us daily. Oh, Lord, my biggest prayer for us this morning is that as we deal with the, the, the hardness of what we see in our own lives in comparison to what we see here, that we will be comforted by the fact that you have given us this to convict us unto holiness, to convict us unto comfort, to convict us unto being satisfied. We thank you for these words, these precious words. We behold you this morning, Lord Jesus. We behold you as our king. We hear you as our king, and we are grateful that we are in your kingdom. I pray for anyone who's here today, Lord, who is not in your kingdom, would you stir their heart with your grace? Would you regenerate them? Would you give them a new heart by which they can repent and believe in the gospel? Your death for sinners and your resurrection from the dead. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.